You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning. My name is Michael Dirks. I serve on Connections and Communion. I will be reading Genesis 24, 1 through 15. So if you want to turn in your Bibles with me. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. Uh, It's on page 17 in those Bibles. Genesis 24. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make uh, you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. But you will go to my country and to my kindred, and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house, from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when the women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show your steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let me draw Uh, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Melchah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Michael. Church family, good to see you here this morning. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here at Northway. Happy Mother's Day to everyone. And uh, I am excited. I could not be more excited about the text we're in this week in Genesis for a couple of reasons. One is, if you're new to Northway, Uh, We don't do a whole lot of topical preaching. So when holidays come around, we just tend to preach whatever passage we're in. And in past years, it has bit me uh, in many passages. 2018, I had to preach on the abomination of desolation from 1 Thessalonians and the man of lawlessness. Happy Mother's Day. 2020, I had to preach on Romans 8 and suffering on Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. 2021, had to preach on Israel's rejection. It's a fantastic topic for Mother's Day. Even last year, we were in a bit of conundrum. Last year, we had scheduled for Mother's Day 
Cain slaughtering Abel. And then on Father's Day was going to be Noah's sons looking upon his nakedness. We quickly adapted and rearranged kind of the order of the the text there. But generally speaking, we preach what's in front of us here. It is the word of God. We stand behind it. This week, God and his grace and providence has given us Genesis 24, the story of Isaac, Rebecca, and the pursuing love of God. Yes. Now, chapter 24 um, is a long text. In fact, it is the longest chapter in all of Genesis. So to ensure that we get you to your brunches on time this morning, I'm going to just walk through this text quickly. I'm going to teach its major themes in some chunks here. Um, And I do think and I hope and I pray that we'll see three of the most prominent themes I think we're intended to see in this text. That of a historical application, a relational application, and certainly a spiritual application that I think are in here. So I want to highlight these and then I'll synthesize them at the very end in practical application here. But let's jump in. As we just read, I'm going to reread some of these uh, verses right out of the gate. Chapter 24 in Genesis sets the scene for us. Now, Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and my kindred and take a wife from my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, well, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me back to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? And Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me that to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mind and only This, you must not take my son back there. So here's the scene. Abraham is probably around 140 years old right now, just a young pup, 140 years old. His wife, Sarah, has recently passed away. And now he has his son, Isaac, who's probably around 40 years old right here, who's single, no kids. And the question is, and the question that has been since chapter 12 is how will this promise of God, of this promised line through Abraham that is going to have a myriad of descendants, how will that promise line continue? And specifically here, if Isaac doesn't find a wife and cannot have kids of his own, how is this going to happen? And you can feel the text now pivoting in Genesis from Abraham now to Isaac, his son, And so it's time to find a wife for Isaac. And in that day, and still in many ancient Near Eastern cultures today, or in Near Eastern cultures today, it was common for a father to arrange a marriage for his son. And typically in doing so, you drew 
from your own family of origin, your own family clans, because those were trusted sources. But Abraham's got a problem. God has called him to be a sojourner in a foreign land, in a pagan land, hundreds and hundreds of miles away from his homeland. And he doesn't have family anywhere near. And so, not only is his family far away, but for Abraham to draw a wife for his son from the land he's in, from the Canaanites, that would be to align his family with their families, his God with their gods, his worship with their worship, and more importantly, their promises with God's promise, and that would be compromise. So he takes his chief servant, because Abraham's old, he can't make a journey right now. Uh, He needs some help. He needs to sit home and rest, take it easy, but he's gonna take his chief servant, who's not named in this chapter, but we know from chapter 15 that his head servant was Eleazar. And so Eleazar, he asks him to take a 450 mile journey. I wanna show you this map just so you see where we're at. Uh, In this, remember, Abraham originally came from Ur, which is directly across to the right on that map, all the way over in the Ur of Chaldeans. Uh, And then his family, on the way to Canaan, uh, relocates. And they're now up north in the city of Nahor, or also known as the city of Haran. And that is now the homeland. That's where his kindred are. That's where his clan is. And so he's asking Eleazar to make this 450-mile journey up north to Mesopotamia to find a suitable wife for his son. And so he makes him swear on this promise that he will not take any shortcuts. He's not to take Isaac back because the temptation for Isaac could be just to stay there. He meets his wife and they fall in love and they're just going to stay right there. But this is the land of promise, not Nahor. And so you keep Isaac here, go fetch a wife, let's bring her back. And so they make a covenant and to ratify this covenant, rather than taking animal parts and separating them like covenants past and meeting in the middle of those parts, he asks him to put his hand under his thigh and you go, what is going on here? It's exactly what you think it is. He's asking him to put his hand right underneath the male reproductive organ and to swear on this promise. Why would you do such a thing? Well, because remember, God made a promise. Abraham, through your seed, I will bring about these descendants. And so this is a literal swearing upon the promise, the object of the promise. It makes us all praise God. We just shake hands today. Good with that. But nonetheless, this is what they do. And it's important to pay attention to this. Two things in particular that stand out to me as I read this portion here. One, how important that this promise of God and securing the right woman in the right place is to Abraham. These are the last, make a note of this, these are the last recorded words of Abraham in your Bible. It's the last thing he's gonna be recorded as saying before he dies. The first words that we have recorded of Abraham were 65 years earlier in chapter 12 when he was lying to Pharaoh about his wife and trying to manipulate the promises of God into action. Now, in his final words that are recorded, we see that he believes the word of God and the promises of God so much 
that he makes his servants swear that he's not going to take any shortcuts. We're not going to try to manipulate this thing. We're going to trust the Lord that he who promised is going to be faithful to provide. And we're going to trust him. And so that's one thing. This is very important to Abraham. But second of all, notice how important it is to God through Abraham here of the importance of what the New Testament will call being equally yoked in this. Why would you just not take some low-hanging fruit that's right here in your back backyard? Why go through all the trouble to find somebody out of your own family of origin here, your own clan? Well, in the Old Testament, this was both a spiritual and an ethnic thing. Passages like Exodus 34, Deuteronomy 12, uh, Joshua 23 would say things like this, do not take a foreign wife lest she turn your heart away from the Lord. That was the danger of taking a spouse outside of your own family because you're not just another family, you're a people who worship differently. And what's going to happen is you're gonna have two masters, you're gonna love one, hate the other, and the danger is you're gonna hate the Lord your God, Yahweh, and you're gonna turn away to her or his God. And that would have been the danger. In the New Testament, this gets transposed to just a spiritual priority. Doesn't matter what race, what ethnicity, what geographical, socioeconomic, none of that matters in who you draw your spouse from. The only thing that matters is the importance of joining yourself with someone who is of the same household of faith that you are. And that applies to marriage. It applies to teaching that you would sit yourself under in local congregations, that you would be of the same mind in the household of God, the same faith. Paul put it this way to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? In marriage, this is not only a biblical command for the Christian, but it's also just practically unwise to join yourself with someone who does not believe of the same God and the same faith and the same salvation that you believe. Two people coming together on surface levels of things like shared physical attraction, shared personalities, shared preferences on what Netflix shows you like. Okay, that's one thing, great. But when you are worlds apart on issues of morality, on issues of worldview, on issues of your definitions of who God is, on definitions of sin and salvation, on how to raise children together. Those are primal. You can't shortcut that. You can't compromise on that. My wife and I, we could not be any more different in our wirings. We could not be any more different on our personalities. Um, we cannot be any more different on so much of our preferences and tastes. I mean, we really are different on a lot of things. But when it comes to our Christian faith, when it comes to our worldview, when it comes to our view of how we are to raise children, we are in lockstep. That is primal 
you get those wrong and you are headed for a world of hurt. You are headed for ultimate division in the days ahead. And God knows it. Your heart will turn away. And so this is of utmost importance to God. And therefore, as you see in this text, it is of utmost importance to Abraham. Now, verse nine, what happens? So the servant puts his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swears to him concerning this matter. And then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and he went to Mesopotamia, the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. So these details are important. Eleazar arrives in Nahor, and notice where he sets up shop, right next to a well. We see this all throughout scripture, but in many other places, but it was common in the ancient Near East that the less reputable clientele would come to draw water during the day, during the heat of the day. Many of the prostitutes or those who are in rebellion, would that would be the time when they would come, but it would be the daughters of men and be the virgin daughters of fathers who would come out to draw water. The servants would come out to draw water in the cool of the day, in the evening. And, uh, and so Eleazar knows exactly what he's doing here. Knows exactly where he's setting up shop. He knows where to shop, so to speak. But notice his dependence upon God and what it is he prays for in seeking to be able to identify the right kind of woman that God would have set aside and set apart for his master's son, Isaac. You see this in verse 12. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of men of the city, they are coming out to draw water. And so here's what he asked for. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and who will respond, drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. I want you to notice what he didn't pray for. Let's just draw some attention to the obvious, what he didn't pray for. You and I, when we're gonna sit down, if we're single and we're interested in finding a mate and we're gonna pray to God about it for his provision, we've probably got a unique list that we wanna bring before God. Let's just be honest. Notice what he doesn't pray for. He doesn't sit down, kneel down by the well and say, oh God of heaven and earth, let her be hot. Let her be five foot 10, blonde hair, blue eye, degree from A&M or Baylor, vivacious personality, loves rom-coms, enjoys the color yellow, enjoys tall skinny mocha lattes, walks long walks on the beach and drives a swank chariot. Nowhere is he praying for that. Two things he prays for. Do you notice them? Number one, favor. 
favor from the sovereign hand of God. God, whatever is provided today, may it be out of your sovereign goodness, not my manipulation. And then number two, that whoever this woman is, she would be a servant. Notice what he's specifically asking. I'm gonna go up to her and say, would you give me a drink? That's all he's asking for and let her respond. This is how I'll know that she'll not only offer to give me a drink, but all the even camels who are with me. Which if you've done any sort of study on this text, then you know this is no small detail that is being recorded right here. When the average camel, how much does a camel drink after a 450 mile journey, especially the last leg heading in here? And not just one camel, 10 camels. Average camel drinks about 25 gallons of water. Average servant in that day, when they would carry these jugs out to the well to draw water, the average cistern that they had on top of them were five gallon jars, five gallon jugs. Do the math, it's about 50 trips, 50 trips. Now, what are we talking about? This isn't the well where you're just letting the bucket down and pulling the bucket back up. These wells are about 100 feet deep, about 30 feet across, and they have stairs that wind down the inside all the way down to where the spring is. This detail is in this text. She's gonna go down and up, down and up at least 50 times. So this is not just servant hospitality. This is hyper servant hospitality, hyper generosity. God, I wanna pray so specific, there is just gonna be no question who you have set apart for my master's son. Now we're gonna find out in verse 16 that the girl that he identifies, that he sees and fulfills this is actually beautiful. And it's described she's a virgin. But note, he never asked for any of those things. They were never prerequisites. They were never qualifications. These are bonuses that came in the story. And specifically, the virginity is only specifically noted here because in this specific case, it is important for the original reader to know that this was, this child, Jacob and Esau, that are gonna come, where it was through Isaac and Rebekah only. That's an important note here concerning the promises of God. So he is asking God here for a servant-hearted mate for Isaac. And by the way, isn't this at the heart of God in general when describing what God's preferences are towards us? All throughout scripture, think about, 1 Samuel 16, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Proverbs 31, 30, charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, oh, that's who is to be praised. Even in the New Testament, Peter in 1 Peter chapter three, do not let your adorning be merely external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear, but let your adorning, let be what is most noticeable about you be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. God doesn't get caught up in externals like we do. He is after the internal beauty and the internal character. That should be the lead story in our lives. 
And so what does God provide here for this prayer? Notice in verse 15 and following, before he had even finished speaking. How quick is God? Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, she came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden with whom no man had known. She went down to the spring, filled her jar and came up. And then she ran, then the servant, by the way, and you gotta love this, the servant ran to meet her. Yeah, I'd say so. Please give me a little water to drink. Here's the test, oh Lord. And she said, drink, my Lord. And then she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence. Yeah, I'd say so. To learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. A resounding yes and amen is provided right here in this text. There's no mistake about it, no doubt. Verse 22, when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing about 10 gold shekels. So these are honor. He honors her for serving him and said, now please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? Now he has no idea. He knows he's in the right city. He knows it's at the right location where the right kind of woman is going to be, but he doesn't know exactly is this indeed part of the Abraham's family clan. And she adds, and tells him in verse 24, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And he instantly knows in this moment, this is Abraham's grandniece. He knows. And she adds, we've got plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. And notice what the man does. Notice what Eleazar does. Soon as all this is confirmed, he bows his head and he worships the Lord. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken, not forsaken me, no, not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. He keeps his promises. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. And so then the young woman ran, you always see her running, ran, and told her mother's household about these things. So it's important to note here, I just wanna highlight this. What would the original readers have been meant to see in this text? Are they just caught up in a little Hebrew rom-com right here? Is this what we're meant to see? No, they're meant to see something bigger. They are meant to see that the sovereign hand of God is all over this story. They already knew. The modern readers, the Israelites who just come out of the Exodus, about to go into the promised land, they already knew the story. They're the fruit of it. They knew of Rebekah. They know that they're going to have Jacob and they know then Joseph and the 12 sons. They knew all that. 
But reading this was intended to strengthen their faith. That before they would go into the promised land and face their enemies and be put to an ultimate test, they need to know that they could trust that the same God who declares the end is the same God who provides the means. And he's trustworthy, he's faithful. And in the same way, you and I can trust him too. The same God who declares the end will be faithful in his good timing and his good ways to provide the means. And this is important because in the next section, we are about to see a test concerning the obedience towards the promises of God. See this in verse 29. Rebecca, we are told here by Moses, Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. And Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. So here we are introduced to Rebecca's older brother, Laban. Now the original Jewish readers, they already knew who this guy is. And if you've read ahead, and you know who this guy is, he is gonna become infamous in the story of Genesis, not for this story here, but in the chapters to come. Eventually, Isaac, at the end of this chapter, is going to marry Rebecca. They're gonna have two sons, Jacob and Esau. And when it comes time for Jacob to find a wife, Jacob himself is gonna make the journey to this very place. And he is going to go to his uncle's house, Laban. And Laban is gonna treat Jacob really poorly, really unfair. He's gonna deceive Jacob by tricking him into marrying not just one, but two of his daughters. And in those episodes, we are gonna learn that Laban is only after one thing, and it's Laban. Laban is after wealth, he is after status and position, anything, anything he is willing to do in order to gain it. That's who Laban is. And so starting right here, we get a little hint of this early on. Look at this in verse 30. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets, notice how Moses puts that as the very first thing. This is what caught his attention first. We're meant to see that. As soon as Laban saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, and he heard the words of Rebekah's sister, thus the man spoke to me, oh, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. And he said, come in, oh, blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? I've prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house, unharnessed the camels, gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. He is just, come on in, roll out the red carpet. And the food was set before Eleazar to eat, but Eleazar said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And he began, then he's asked to speak on. Now in verses 34 to 49, it's a long little section here. It is simply a retelling of the entire story from Genesis 12 to 24. Um, here's where we're gonna save a little time, not cover this, we've done this. Um, but I'll tell you this, 
Why would you retell the story within the story in Genesis? We see this happen in multiple places. When it comes to the retelling of stories in Genesis that is quite common, it is usually done for the purpose of the original readers who are reading it. So they can know, especially in this story, this story is not primarily about Laban's greed and the threat that Laban is about to present to Eleazar and thus Abraham. No, this story is primarily about God's faithfulness to overcome any threat to his promises, no matter what. And by retelling the same story, it is just doubling down on that theme that we have been covering all the way through Genesis of the invincibility of God's promises. So I want to jump down. He retells the story to catch up Laban in the household there. And in verse 50, then Laban and Bethuel, they answered and they said, well, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. It doesn't matter what we think about any of this, about giving you our, our sister or daughter, uh, Rebecca, whether we think that's a good thing, bad thing. The fact is, if this is what the Lord has commanded, then so be it. Behold, verse 51, Rebecca is before you. Take her and go. Let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord again. He's always worshiping and thanking the Lord. And the servant then brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him, they ate and they drank and they spent the night there. And when they arose in the morning, he said, now send me away to my master. So Laban has now agreed. Now, why isn't the dad stepping up? Well, he's probably older in age as well. Um, and it, oftentimes you see the son, oldest son, kind of take the new patriarchal role in the home. And so Laban's kind of the, the head of the family in many ways. And so Laban agrees to this. And in the first thing in the morning, they can take off and they can go and head back to Beersheba, back in the land of Canaan. But the next morning, here's where the twist comes in. Verse 55, her brother and her mother said, tell you what, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. And after that, she may go. And so there is a delay here all of a sudden. We're not so willing to let our, our daughter go right now or my sister go right now. Why the lingering here? Now, the language is interesting in this text. That phrase, let her remain at least 10 days. In Hebrew, it actually can also be translated, let the girl remain with us days or 10. And that is actually a phrase in Hebrew nomenclature that in Jewish tradition later came to mean, well, let her stay a day or 10 days or 10 months, up to a year even that phrase can mean. At the end of the day, what's happening here is that Laban doesn't want him to leave just yet. He wants her to stay. Now, why? A couple possible reasons. Maybe they just love sweet sister, sweet daughter. Don't want to just let them go. Let us get a little bit more time. This all came so quickly, by the way. Let us just enjoy some time with her before she goes. And that would be right to ask. But I think more importantly, what we're meant to read here is that Eleazar 
knows that the longer they stay, the more time Laban has to try to milk more money out of them. And that tends to be the theme of what we're meant to see because we're going to see it later. He's going to do the same thing with Jacob. Why don't you stay seven years and then I'll give you um, my daughter. And then he tricks him. Tell you what, guess you're going to need to stay another seven years. He's always up to scheming here. And so he wants him to stay. And what we see in verse 56 is that Eleazar is not interested in playing that game. His only interest is honoring the promise of God and the request of his master, Abraham, and not delaying that any further. So in verse 57, they agree to let Rebecca make the call. Oh, finally, modern day women's lib right here. Let's go, it's in here. You see it, 57. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. Yeah, might be nice to get her opinion. And they call Rebecca and they said to her, will you go with this man? And notice her response. I will go. What are we meant to see here? The importance of making sure her opinions counted. I mean, we love that, but this would have been not uncommon in many days that the arranged marriage goes and you just trust. What we're meant to see here. Remember the original question that Eleazar posed to Abraham. What if she's unwilling to go? And what does she say here? No, I will go. What we are meant to see here is her faith. Her faith and trust in Abraham's God. In this moment, she is playing the female counterpart to Abraham. She's almost the mirror to Abraham in Genesis or, or chapter 12. Remember, Abraham was an Ur, called to go to a place he had never been before and to trust in the promise of God for land, seed, and blessing. And now here's Rebecca called out to go to a place she had never been before, to meet and marry a man she had never seen before, and all to do so in trust in the same promise of land, seed, and blessing. And what does she do? She says, I will go. And notice the theme put on repeat in verse 59 and following. So they sent away Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men, and notice the three things in verse 60. They blessed Rebecca, blessing. And they said, our sister, may you, may you become thousands of 10,000s, seed, offspring. May you multiply. And may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. That's the land piece. May you possess the land of your very enemies who hate both God and his promises and God's servants. So the same blessing of land, seed, and blessing is there. And then Rebecca and her young women, they arose and they rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebecca and went his way. So we are seeing here a mirrored image of Abraham in chapter 12, of Abraham's calling in faith through the lens now of Rebecca inheriting those same promises of land, seed, and blessing. But not only is she a mirror of Abraham, most importantly, she now is gonna take the role of Sarah as the new matriarch in this story when she returns and she marries Isaac. Watch how this story closes. Beautiful. Now, Isaac had returned 
from Be'er Lahairoi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field towards evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes and when she saw Isaac, and by the way, the, the construction of this verse in the original Hebrew brings about or suggests the idea that both their eyes met at the same time. Man, you thought the notebook had something on this right here, y'all. It doesn't get any more beautiful than this. And so she dismounted from the camel, walking in the field, uh, or, and she said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And Eleazar said, it is my master, it's Isaac. And so she took her veil and she covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And thus the promise of God now pivots in Genesis from Abraham and Sarah to Isaac and Rebekah, as we'll pick up next week. Beautiful story, is it not? I mean, praise God we're not in the abomination of desolation today for Mother's Day. Three takeaways I think we're meant to see here. Let me say these quickly. One of them is historical. There is a historical application we're meant to see here. Again, what were the original readers meant to see in the telling of this story? And it's the same thing that has been on repeat all throughout Genesis of the invincibility of God towards his promises, the sovereign invincibility of God to fulfill his promises, no matter what threats may arise. Doesn't matter if it's war or famine, doesn't matter if it's Abraham's lying and deceit, doesn't matter if the future wife is 450 miles away, doesn't matter if you're barren, it doesn't matter what the threats are. God is faithful to his promises. God promised Abraham he would bless him, provide land, seed, and blessing, and he is doing just that. God is faithful. And it is the same 3,000 years later, 4,000 years later to us as we wait on the final pieces of God's promises to come true. That day when our Messiah will return, who will heal all things, wipe away every tear, make all things new, and his dwelling place will be with us once again where we don't have to live by faith, but we'll live by sight perfectly for all eternity. As we wait on that final promises, there are threats that are going to come. There are going to be temptations to quit, to retreat, to manipulate, to shortcut. But we need to remember God is faithful. He who declares the end will be faithful to provide the means. All he asks of us is to trust him and to follow him. Trust and obey for there is no other way. That is what God asks of us. Secondly, though, there is a relational application. We've seen some of this. There are beautiful lessons in this chapter, by the way, that can be discerned and can be applied even in our relationships today. Now, we need to be careful. 
Genesis 24 is not ultimately about dating and relationships, okay? We, we, we saw that in the first point I just gave. It's ultimately about God's promises, his invincibility, his faithfulness. So we need to be careful. If you're gonna try to read Genesis 24 as a dating manual to be taken literally, then I hope your future spouse is your cousin and they're really good at taking care of camels. It's not how we're meant to read this. However, however, there is no question that with the amount of weight that is given in this chapter towards the formation of this relationship and that is reinforced in the New Testament, there are principles we can glean. For instance, the importance of being equally yoked spiritually. Not only seeking someone who legitimately belongs to the household of the Christian faith, who personally walks with Jesus, but the importance of us being that someone who belongs to the household of faith, who walks with Jesus and who pursues relationships according to God's design, not according to man's desires. It's important that we see that. The importance of internal character being the lead story in one's life rather than just mere external impressions. Seeking someone and then seeking to be someone who is known more by our love for others, more by our servant's heart, more by being a man or a woman of integrity, more by being seen as someone who seeks first the kingdom of God rather than one who's merely focused on externals of wealth and fame or physical appearance. And y'all, we are dating system in the West. It is jacked up. It's all we got right now, but it is jacked up. And we are in a system right now. We are in a currency right now where everything is set up to be based on physical externals. The whole thing, even now in dating online and, and going through all the various apps, which can be a common grace, they still force you to have to interpret externally really quick and to be marked and attracted by external pressures. What is removed in online dating is a lot of the time and patience that is given in the observation stage. The, there's a study in Bible study methods called hermeneutics. The approach to scripture is observation, interpretation, application. And it says the longer that you spend time observing, the less time you have to spend interpreting the scripture. And then the easier it'll be to apply what is meant in scripture. When you just jump, when you have a shorter observation period, you don't read the text for a while, you immediately have to go to interpretation. And the same is true in dating. When we don't get enough time to observe one's character and we condense that through just an external checkbox list, it forces us to in, immediately interpret. It's why more of our dating relationships and breakups today feel more like divor divorces. And the old adages are so true. What you bait someone with is what, what you're gonna have to keep them with. The type of bait you use determines the type of fish you catch. And if you're just going to use externals, then get ready for that's the kind of fish that's coming after you. And then what you, what you hook them with is what you're gonna have to keep them with. So if you hook on external beauty, man, I hope there's enough plastic in surgery to go around for the rest of your life to hold somebody in there. There's gotta be something more. And I know for those in here who are single, going, listen, I've tried to walk with Jesus. I've tried to be faithful. I've tried to, tried to let character be the lead story. And I'm still single and the desires of my heart. Listen, I understand, okay? I know how painful and hard that waiting can be, but don't lower your standards. 
Raise your trust in God. And as the old adage goes, it is better to be single wishing you're married than to be married wishing you were single. Same true, don't go shopping when you're hungry. You're gonna be really sad with what you're gonna bring home. There's a spiritual application. I wanna close with this. This text, it's not immediately here right now, but I would be remiss if I did not walk away from this chapter not seeing the meta-narrative parallels that are on fire in this chapter, pointing us to Jesus Christ and the Father's redemptive work. Does this text sound remotely familiar when I frame it this way? A father seeking to elect a bride for his only begotten son, who then sends out his servant to go get her, compels her by grace through faith to go and receive him as her husband, as her bridegroom, and then clothes her in riches, grafts her into eternal promises for all of the days that she shall live. Does that sound remotely familiar? That's the story of this text. That's the story of our redemption. That's the story of scripture. We are a people who were far off, alienated, who had been elected by God from eternity past. God the Father, at the right time, sends his servant, the Holy Spirit, to go and to open our eyes to see, to open our ears to hear, and to open our hearts to believe in his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, who has been waiting for us while we as his bride have been being prepared. And through his own bride price, his own son's payment by giving his life on for us on the cross that our sins might be forgiven, he receives us to him. And he has now clothed us in his righteousness. He has seated us with him in the heavenly places. All that is his is ours. I am my beloved's, my beloved is mine. And he has bestowed his eternal wealth upon us so that he can bring us to himself and live in the promises of God forever. This is what our God has done for us through Jesus Christ. If you have yet to put your trust in Jesus this Mother's Day, what an opportunity to be invited in to put your faith in Jesus Christ and to know he has been pursuing you your entire life because he loves you and has given his own son for you. May you know him today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this beautiful story. Certainly a amazing love story of Isaac and Rebecca. But more than that, it is the love story of you towards us by electing us, by drawing us in, by opening our eyes and our hearts to see and to believe upon Jesus Christ, to be reconciled through faith and his redemptive work on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, that we might receive new life, not by anything that we have done, but sheerly by your own mercy and grace towards us. Oh Lord, let our hearts be kindled today that we might leave this place glorifying your name and inviting more into that same relationship. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. 
A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.